This is Theology Refresh. I'm David Mathis. This is our Desiring God Theological Podcast for Pastors. And sitting with me here today is Jared Wilson. Jared is pastor of Middletown Springs Community Church in Middletown Springs, Vermont. He's author of the book, Gospel Wakefulness. And our topic today is the Trinity. Jared, thanks for joining us for our easy one. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah, please lob some softballs at me. (laughs) Let's start with a definition of Trinity. What do we mean by that? Well, the right belief in the doctrine of the Trinity is that uh, there is one God who exists in, in three persons, as three persons. Um, and so there's um, a lot to say about It's a shorthand way of communicating an immense doctrine. We're talking about the nature of God or the being of God. And I've heard it put before that there is one what and three who's that are that what, or uh, a more theological way to put it, or a more academic way to put it, would be to say there's one substance and three subsistences. Um, and so when we say there's one God who exists as three persons, we say that each of the three persons is equally and co-eternally God. Um, we, we have to distinguish between errors on both sides. Um, we could say um, in error that, well, to see that there are three persons mean that that means that there's three gods, so it's sort of like tritheism. Um, there's three individual gods, but, but no, there's one God and He exists eternally as three persons. Or we might fall off the ditch in the other side and, and say, um, as what we would call modalists do, um, that there's one God and He manifests Himself in three different persons. So He's not simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, but at different times manifests Himself or actualizes Himself in those guises as, uh, as if He's morphing into three different um, persons or three different entities. Um, But there is one God who exists eternally uh, in three persons, and those three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of those persons is equally God, um, eternally God, and of the same essence, although distinct in personhood. Mm. So the term Trinity, it's not in the Bible. Is that okay? (laughs) It is okay, and I think the term Trinity uh, reminds us of the ways that uh, we can synthesize what's in the biblical text in order to proclaim it. And so there's a difference between um, the Scripture and um, expositing the Scripture. So when if a pastor is to preach a sermon, we distinguish and we say he's preaching the Word, but we still distinguish in some way that... um, that there are his words and then there's the scriptural text and that in some uh, in his sermon there is a distinction in there uh, between what he is saying and what the word is saying but we still say he's preaching the bible when he is expositing or elaborating what's in the biblical text so in the same way the trinity is not a word that appears in the bible uh, but it's a way for us to be faithful in um, creating a synopsis for what's there in the bible about the trinity and the bible is not systematic theology textbook that would say trinity Right. Is what it means. But the Bible is a book in which God has revealed himself over time and his authoritative, inerrant, infallible speaking through different spokesmen collected in the Christian scriptures. So there's a, a sense in which this doctrine of the Trinity, we call it Trinity systematically, is revealed over time. That's right. Unpack that for us. Well, if you look at the narrative of the Old Testament, just the variety of texts that are there. Um, there is, uh, in some sense, where we have clues or we have these evidences of things that aren't fully fleshed out for us until the New Testament revelation. 
Um, so, so even like in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we're told that the law is a shadow of the things to come. So um, Warfield talks about uh, the Old Testament uh, as being a dimly lit room. The furniture is all there, but you don't see it all yet, or maybe you just see shapes of it. And then in the New Testament, the light is flicked on, and suddenly you say, oh, well, that was a chair, and that was the couch, and that's the mantle um, in, in, in the fireplace, that sort of thing. So we have these evidences. We have the um, the Trinitarian shape. We have the clues there throughout the Old Testament. And it's not until we get to the New Testament that we begin to see this explicit revelation of each of these persons and, and sort of the, uh, the complementary nature of the persons um, who are God. Um, but we see as, you know, as early as the creation of man where we read in the text where God is saying, let us make man in our image. And you know, some will say, well, he's referring to the heavenly host and he's speaking about the heavenly court and the angels and that sort of thing. But I think we see um, a hint at the Trinity even in the early text of Genesis and the creation that God is saying about his three-person self. We're going to make man in our image that way. And then, of course, there's um, places in the Old Testament where um, some see what are called Christophanies, appearances of Christ before his incarnation. And perhaps there's one where Jacob is wrestling the angel, the messenger of the Lord, because afterwards he says, I've seen the face of God. He doesn't just say, I see a face of an angel. I've seen the face of God. And of course, the Spirit is all over the Old Testament as well. The Spirit of the Lord is there inhabiting the temple, is on the surface of the deep. So we see the person sort of in the shadows where in the New Testament um, the light is switched on and we begin to see the persons more vividly and visibly. And this is related to the fact that for the Christian, uh, Jesus, a fully human person mm-hmm. uh, in the first century who walked on earth, was crucified by the Romans, uh, we believe was raised in power. This Jesus has become to us a lens for seeing everything. So as we go back to the Old Testament, we see things differently or see things we may not have seen there had it not been for God revealing himself in this fully divine fully human person named Jesus. That's right. That's right. It, I, I think it, it runs a parallel line to the way we see our, our lives sometimes while we're in the midst of a dark period or going through something. We don't quite see what God is doing, but in retrospect, through the light of what, what God has done for us, we look back and go, oh, that's what he was doing in those times. That's what he was doing. And in the same way, through the light of Christ in the New Testament, we can look back and see, oh, this is what God was doing through those prophecies. This is what that psalm meant. This is what God was doing when he was applying the law this way and that way in the Old Testament because we have the revelation of Christ to help us see those things. And this wasn't easy or immediate for early Christians. The the church wrestled with this for centuries. It doesn't seem like the church at large is wrestling with it the same way now, 2,000 years later, as it was, say, 200 years into the history of the church. Uh, but seeing that the that Jesus was fully God and that then this Holy Spirit whom he poured out is fully God and he talks about his Father as fully God, the church was less was left to, to wrestle with how to articulate this in non-biblical language. That's right. And one of the testimonies or, or one of the evidences that we have that, that God even works evil to good is how so many of the, you know, the creedal statements or the confessions uh, even like the doctrine of the Trinity, for it to be explicitly defined, okay, we're going to put this in concrete terms, was largely um, in response to heresies. So there was uh, almost a latent or, or belief. The church always believed the doctrine of the Trinity, um, uh, you know, founded in the scriptures. But in terms of saying, okay, we need to formulate this, we need to lay this out, 
you know, it came as a response to people sort of departing from the faith and coming up with all sorts of variations and trying to wrestle with that immensity and then trying to make peace with it rather than putting their faith in it. That's really helpful. Uh, what are some of the implications for Christians uh, in having a God who's Trinitarian? Hmm. Well, it has um, immense implications for how we obey God. When, when Jesus is issuing the Great Commission and he's telling us to baptize, he says to baptize in the singular name of the Trinitarian God. So one name, but Father, Son, and, and, and Holy Ghost. So when we look to our sense of worship, we look to our sense of obedience, when we look to following Christ into the life that God would have for us as we travel Godward, I guess we could say, we need to make sure it's the one true God. It's the only real God who exists. And so to think uh, in Trinitarian terms about the God does God as much justice as we're able to in, in that sense. We don't sell God short by shortchanging the Trinity or sort of um, trying to sand off those edges. And sometimes that happens, I think, uh, as we wrestle with it because there's no... Um, there's no earthbound analogy for that. And there's different illustrations that people have used uh, to try to illustrate the Trinity, but every one that people come up with just seems to you know, fall flat. It doesn't work. There's, you know, a three-leaf clover doesn't work because there's, it's not distinct. It's like, you know, it's one leaf with three prongs or something like that. Or, um, you know, if you look at water and say it can be a solid or a liquid or a gas, well, that would be more like modalism because it's not all those three things at the same time. And so there's just no modern analogy. There's no earthbound analogy. There's nothing analogous to the Trinity. So it becomes hard to wrestle with that or, or to wrap our mind around that immensity. But I think we should be okay with that because this is the nature of God. And I would be a little scared if I thought I could wrap mm -hmm. my mind around that. I just okay. want to say this is what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to believe that even if I don't, even if I can't um, find it scrutable in, in, in every sense. So what then, as we close here, is the relationship between the Trinity and this message of the gospel that is central for Christians and for churches? Yeah. Well, on the surface, we can immediately say um, that we're, since we're saved by God and for God and even to God, uh, we want to be, um, be right with which God, the one true God, and that God is a Trinitarian God. But there's also these... Um, these great texts in, in the New Testament that help us to see how the Trinity, the, you know, the triunity that is God, works in concert uh, to save us. And so in, in some sense, the gospel itself is, is God-shaped. It's, it's Trinitarian in itself. So like in 1 Peter um, chapter 1, uh, Peter is, uh, you know, he's sending his greetings and he's addressing his letter to those who are elect exiles. And in verse 2 he says, you're, you're Christians, basically. You're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So Peter is giving us in one verse sort of the shape of the gospel and showing how each person of the Trinity works in a unique way but in a unified way in order to save us. So God the Father is commissioning the work or designing the work, uh, commanding the work, the Son and the Spirit in some sense proceed from Him. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. And then um, the Son accomplishes the work. He comes on mission and does the work that the Father has designed or commissioned Him to do. And then the Spirit applies that work and actualizes that work in our life. So each person of the Trinity is making sure that we're saved and in that sense our salvation is, is shaped like um, the Trinitarian life or a reflection of the Trinitarian life. Mm. 
So it's not just a doctrine for classrooms, but it's of essential importance in the everyday and everyday life in ministry. And while we want to remind leaders here of the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Jared, would you pray for us and for the leaders listening as we close? Well, thank you, Father, for those you have commissioned to be your sons and daughters. You have chosen them before the foundation of the earth in love. Uh, you have set the designs of your son, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world on them. Um, you have um, purposed that your spirit uh, would be seeking them out and stirring their heart and wooing them. So God, I pray that in this moment, uh, we would see this, um, this teaching about who you are and the greatness of you, the great expanse that we cannot wrap our minds around um, as so immense and lovely because of, of its immensity that we would be in awe of you. Um, and worship you as you are in spirit and in truth. Uh, it's for your glory, by your Son's authority, and according to the work of your Spirit that I pray. Amen.